What is the actual story behind the war on Yemen? What evidence is there of Canadian complicity in the war? Will U.S. suspension of arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the revoking of the terrorist title of the Ansarallah Group be meaningful steps in ending the war? Can ordinary citizens in the U.S. and Canada make a meaningful difference for their Yemen-bound comrades? This week on the Global Research News Hour, with the country of Yemen becoming the site of the greatest humanitarian crisis on the planet, we will convene a show endeavoring to get to the heart of who's to blame and of what's at stake. In our first half hour, we're joined by Vancouver-based activist Aza Rabji to describe how the crisis arose and what are the costs and how activists in Canada can make a difference. And in our second half hour, two journalists, Stephen Swahini from Syria and Yusra Abdulmalik from Sana'a in Yemen, offer their perspectives of where the country is at now with recent moves by the new U.S. president. On this week's program, genocide drowned out by media silence, the Yemen war six years later. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 16th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The CDC wants the public to think that this is an insignificant number, since only 189 million doses of COVID-19 emergency use injections have now been administered to the public. But to put this into perspective, these 3,005 deaths now exceed the total number of deaths following all vaccinations from August of 2007 through the end of November 2020 just before the experimental COVID shots started. That is a time period of over 13 years, with 3,001 deaths following all vaccinations administered during that time frame. That comes from the article, CDC, 3,005 recorded deaths in VAERS following COVID-19 experimental vaccines, more than total vaccine deaths for past 13 plus years by Brian Shilhavy, posted April 14th, originally published in Health Impact News. After a year, the first shockwaves have passed, even though the corrupted governments, particularly in the global north, steamroll over any evidence that this is all a criminal swindle. In the long run, to no avail, as truth will prevail. Those politicians and leaders sick of the participating 193 governments, they are all aware of the game 
and the massive crime being perpetrated on humanity on the very people who elected them and pay for their salaries and social benefits. These politicians must be called to justice as the truth will surface and prevail. Hope manifests itself also on a more modest but nonetheless convincing and encouraging scale. People want to live. They want their stolen lives back. They want to enjoy living, being again their sovereign selves. That comes from the article, There is Hope, Coming to Grips with This COVID Chaos, by Peter Koenig, posted April 14th. As detailed in many previous articles, it boils down to the global implementation of a new economic system based on technocratic ideology that will so radically transform and dehumanize society that they simply cannot sell it with honesty. The vast majority would be horrified and refuse to go along with it. Their only option is to sneak it in under the guise of something else. Right now, that something else is the so-called COVID-19 pandemic. Under the pretext of public health safety, we're told we need censorship, lockdowns, social distancing, mask wearing, new domestic terrorism laws, and vaccine passports. That comes from the article, Fear-mongering goes nuclear. We're in brand new pandemic by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted April 14th, originally published at the site for Mercola. person of admirable courage, he was willing to sacrifice his own well-being and face grave dangers and immense hardships as he attempted to defend the victims of U.S. hegemony. For the people of Cuba and Palestine and numerous other such places, Ramsey Clark was the voice of justice, the unflinching spokesman of the downtrodden who could not be silenced by the might of power. Many will also honor him as the U.S. Attorney General who supervised the drafting of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which empowered the African-American population as never before. He also enforced the desegregation of schools across the South. It is not widely known that Clark had also espoused the cause of another voiceless community in the U.S., namely Native Americans. That comes from the article, Ramsey Clark, One of the Greatest, by Dr. Chandra Muzaffar, posted April 14th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In September of 2014, the rebel group known as Ansarallah, or the Houthis, took over the city of Sana'a in Yemen. By March of the next year, they had expanded their control by driving into the southern provinces and had forced President Abdraba Mansur Hadi into exile. The coalition, led by the Saudi government, immediately started attacks on the Houthi to restore the president to power. Today, the civilians of Yemen paid a heavy price 
to get a closer look at what has become of the country six years after the war began. The Global Research News Hour reached out to Aza Rubji. She's an anti-war and social justice activist, and she is author of the 2019 book U.S. and Saudi War on the People of Yemen. The Global Research News Hour started our conversation by asking for comments on the humanitarian crisis plaguing the country. Thank you for giving me this platform to be able to explain to your listeners a bit about what's going on there. And so, as you mentioned, the United Nations and a lot of humanitarian organizations have been sounding the alarm year after year, now into the sixth year of this atrocities that um, the Saudi Arabia coalition, which is backed by the United States, have been carrying in, in for over six years now in Yemen. And so to give your listeners a little bit of an idea about when I say the world's humanitarian crisis, according to the United Nations, over 233,000 people have died as a direct and indirect cause of this war. So when I say indirect cause of the war, I mean people are dying from famine, from lack of health services, from lack of infrastructure, lack of hospitals. So it's not only that the Saudi coalition is bombing and killing people of Yemen, they're also starving them with a blockade that is impeding any fuel or food or humanitarian aid from reaching the people of Yemen. So this crisis has been going now for six years and year after year, the international community and the United Nations have sounded the alarm that Yemen is on the brink of famine and every year we try, as here in Vancouver and other groups around the world, are trying to bring this issue more to light. That, for example, uh, the most recent updates from the United Nations um, this year, they're expecting that because of the food shortages and the fuel shortages, this can result and 400,000 children could die at a risk of dying right now in Yemen. And, and this is another number that is, is horrible to see six years of death and destructions and see, for example, now a lot of people around the Muslim world are celebrating Ramadan and are fasting in this very important month for a lot of the Muslim community. But people in Yemen don't have that right. They've been starved. They're not fasting in Ramadan. They've been starved by a Saudi-led coalition war in their country for six years now. Maybe there's a, a specific example of a tragedy that, that haunts you to this day. I mean, could you share that story with our listeners? I think one of the, one of the big, there, there were a lot of atrocities committed by the Saudi-led coalition in the war on Yemen. And I think one of the ones that got more of a media coverage and, and in, in some case hunted a lot of people is a bombing uh, that uh, Saudi-led coalition bombed a school bus. So imagine children getting together in a school bus, excited to go on a field trip. And that was the last time that there was the last breath of these kids. So we're talking about imagining here in Canada, you get up in the morning and you send your child on a school bus going on a field trip with all that joy and excitement and anticipation of a day that they're going to have outside enjoying each other's company. And this school bus was bombed by the Saudi-led coalition. And of course, later on, they said, oops, it was a mistake. We're talking about human life here. Over 40 kids or 40 children were killed on the same day at the school bombing. And one of the, I think one of the pictures that will stay always in, in my mind, and I think it, it's a horrifying picture, was 
the aftermath of the bombing, you can see all the school children's backpack and they were UNICEF backpack tainted with blood on the ground. And so pictures like this, as graphic as they are, unfortunately, have been part of the daily life of people of Yemen. And, and in, in, in my book, there is actually, maybe I can read part of it uh, from the introduction um, where I asked uh, Ahmed Jahaf, who's a Yemeni, uh, who's a Yemeni uh, graphic designer and artist. And so I wanted him to write the preface to my book because I wanted that story from the ground. I wanted that Yemeni voice of people daily uh, feeling that bombing and living under it. And so he started his, um, his preface by uh, a little bit of a short paragraph where he's explaining how he felt the first day of the bombing. So this is going back to March 26, 2015. If, if that's okay with you, I'll just read a little bit from it because I think that goes back to your questions of how, what are the, for me, it was horrifying seeing those pictures, but for Ahmed and a lot of other Yemenis, they're living this on a daily basis. This, this is their, sure, they ahead. get up in the morning, this is what they go through. And so he says, so I, I'm reading uh, from the preface to my book by uh, Ahmed Jahaf. It says, my child fell asleep while watching cartoons. So I carried him, tucked him into bed and went to my bedroom. My wife was asleep. The electricity went out and I couldn't fall asleep. I opened my laptop to watch an episode of a documentary and suddenly huge explosion rocked the capital Sana'a from all sides. I couldn't stop myself and yelled loudly while running towards my child's room. I picked him up. I did not know where to go or what was happening. So we went to the first floor of the house. We saw the signs of horror and confusion in the faces of all members of our family. The children were screaming, frightened, shocked by what had happened and we couldn't even try to calm or comfort them. My brother who was traveling in China called to tell me that Saudi Arabia announced the start of a military operation and is now bombing Sana'a. I could not talk to him for much longer because of the sounds of explosion, shelling and heavy aerial flights. Mm. So this short testimony is from the start of the war. So we are going back to 2015 and this atrocities and this daily feelings of horror and, and, and fear that the Yemeni people have been going through is still happening now. And so imagine if you were a child that was born in Yemen in 2016, you haven't seen your country without a war. Your everyday life is going through, having to go through the blockade where you don't have enough food, there's not enough fuel for hospitals, but also being tucked to bed and then fearing for your life because you don't know if you hear a plane going over, what's going to happen? Is Saudi Arabia going to bomb your neighborhood? Is it going to bomb your house? So this constant fear for their life has been a daily um, on, on a daily basis for the Yemeni people. But I also want to quickly add that it's also important to see that the Yemeni people have been uh, standing up and resisting this war. So they are the victim of this aggression, but they are a very proud and brave people. And they've, they've been like people like Ahmed Jahaf and a lot of other Yemenis have been trying to get their voice out, try to explain to the world what's going on in their country, despite the fact that they know they might be targeting targeted for speaking out against this Saudi-led coalition war, but they're brave enough to stand up nationally and internationally against this war. Could you explain the Saudis' angle? I mean, they're saying they're carrying out these attacks in order to defeat the Houthis, who would gradually con- 
taken control of parts of Yemen and ultimately forced the new president, Abdraba Mansour Hadi, to flee the country. That's the reason for the six-year war, to restore Hadi and, and supposedly the proper president to power and to eradicate the influence of Iran, who's presumably supporting the Houthis. Is that their actual rationale or is there ultimately more to it than that? Yeah, thank you for the question. So uh, as, as you said, uh, Saudi Arabia started the war with this uh, uh, claiming with the guise of restoring legitimacy and stability back to Yemen. And so just to go back to uh, Al-Hadi, he actually, uh, he's, his term expired, he resigned and he fled to Riyadh. So he's, he's a, a so-called legitimate president. He's a president inside of Saudi Arabia, hiding in their palaces and claiming to be a president, not even in the country itself. And so outside of that, the point is that if we look at this claim of bringing back peace and legitimacy to the region or to Yemen, six years into it now, we only see the situation is worse. And so if they were actually caring for the livelihood of the Yemeni people or that they really cared about bringing democracy and, and stability to Yemen, they would not be bombing the people of Yemen. So it's very important to realize that in some ways, Saudi Arabia is the lackey of the United States in the Middle East. And so from day one, this war was backed by the United States government and other imperialists that have their own interest in the region. So it is not only Saudi Arabia that is the one that's acting uh, and, and that's, that started this war. They could have not have done it if they, in Washington, D.C., they didn't give them the let go and supported them militarily, logistically, with training, politically. The U.S. offered all kinds of support to start the war for Saudi Arabia. So it's important to look at it as as um as a as a in general about for example it might be interesting to your listener to think about where Yemen is and their strategic location in the Middle East and North Africa, and so Yemen um, is a country that has a, a long uh, border a long coastal border, uh, and and so in its coastal border we have what it's called Babel Mendeb Strait, which is a narrow strategic waterway. Uh, between the Horn of Africa, the Middle East, and it's connecting the Mediterranean Sea uh, through the Swiss Canal and the Red Sea to the Gulf of Aden, the Arabian Sea, and the Indian Ocean. So we're talking about one of the most active and vital maritime shipping routes in the world goes right by Yemen. So Yemen's location in the Middle East and North Africa is extremely strategic to the interest of the United States and their lackeys like Saudi Arabia and the, and the United Arab Emirates in the region. Were there other reasons? Uh, I mean, you, you talk about that strategic uh, setup. Are there other reasons as well that the United States is is, is fostering this uh, this ongoing insurgency? Yes, and and I think uh, part of it is that um, for 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 Saudi Arabia and for the United States and and, and other imperialist allies. The potential of having an independent and powerful Yemen in that strategic location is a threat to their interest in the region. And so we saw that when uh, what we call uh, here in mobilization against war and occupation, the new era of war and occupation, which started with the occupation of Afghanistan in 2001. So we see that strategically, the United States cannot let an independent government be in the Middle East. And so that's what they've been doing in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Syria. So in, in this new era of war and occupation, they have been imposing sanctions, wars, occupations, blockades to break the will of any sovereign nation or any nation that wants to be sovereign in the region 
and make them accept their and, and dictate to them their plans of domination of, of the whole region. So a potential of with, with its location, with its population and its rich history, a potential of a strong and independent Yemen is a big threat to the region and to the interests of the United States in that region. So like Yemen is to Saudi Arabia what Cuba is to the United States. It is. And, and, and in some ways, it is a threat to uh, Saudi Arabia because uh, Yemen is a, a, a country rich of history and ancient civilization. And it, and it does have a, a lot of um, and, 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 and very, very strong history of, of fighting against oppressors. And so for Saudi Arabia to have a neighbor that's going to be that strong and independent and can carry on their own decisions and is not under the domination locally of Saudi Arabia and then the domination of the United States internationally is a threat. Is Because let's go back and th- see as Saudi Arabia is not a stable country. It's a, still a kingdom. It's still a monarchy that is oppressing people. So any threat of a, a democratic and dependent country nearby is a threat to them keeping the status quo in their own oppressive regime in their own country. Now, Canada is uh, accused of a, of a major arms deal with Saudi Arabia. I mean, one was a, a $15 billion uh, LAV deal. Uh, Trudeau said the deal was started under his predecessor and that Canada has to honor deals that are already signed. Do we know for a fact that the light armored vehicles are used in this war? How do you argue Canada's direct complicity in the So uh, just to go back a little bit and add uh, to your question. And so Canada uh, is going ahead and, and the Trudeau government is going ahead and selling this light armored vehicle to Saudi Arabia. Um, but it's, it's also continuing to sell a lot of other arms to Saudi Arabia, including rifles and a lot of other military equipment. So we're not only selling them the light armored vehicle, we're selling them other military equipment and all of that has been going uh, since Harper and now with the Trudeau government. So there's actually, um, and, and, and the CB, even the CBC, who usually does not cover much about Yemen, has covered this. Uh, and, and so where they were, there were footages and, and pictures from a light armored vehicle that the Houthi rebels have captured after a fight near the, near the Yemen-Saudi borders. And so experts in Canada have looked at those and have said that this is the light armored vehicles that we sold Saudi Arabia years ago. So that's not the new sophisticated ones that we're selling them now. This is not the first deal that Canada is doing selling light armored vehicle to Saudi Arabia. We already sent them and sold them some years ago. So they're using some of those in the war now. And there is experts in Canada that have seen the pictures and the footage and testified that those are Canadians made light armored vehicles. But there is also um, footages and, and, and proofs that Canada have, not Canada, excuse me, Saudi Arabia have used this light armored vehicles in 2011 in Bahrain, another sovereign nation and that in 2011, the people of Bahrain rose against their monarchy there and rose against the government and had peaceful protests. So Saudi Arabia went into Bahrain to squash the peaceful protesters in their own countries with light armored vehicle made in Canada. And so there's a history of Saudi Arabia using this weaponry that it's buying from Canada against their own people in Saudi Arabia, against the people of Bahrain, and now in the war on Yemen. So instead of looking at all of this, and saying, okay, maybe we should stop selling them arms. Actually, Canada is selling more armed vehicles to Saudi Arabia. 
And just to give your listeners a little bit of an idea about the statistics of how much we're selling them. So for example, in 2019, and Canada uh, exports to Saudi Arabia in terms of arms is about $3 billion. And so think of Saudi Arabia is actually Canada's highest buyer of arms after the United States. And this is all the statistics are very clear and are all uh, in the Canadian government website themselves that after the United States government, Saudi Arabia is who is the highest buyer of the weapons that are made here. So that Canada is extremely and very much complicit in the killings that happen in Yemen, not directly, but indirectly because we're selling them the weapons that they're using to keep continuing carrying this war. And even uh, the United Nations in a report in 2020 added Canada's name as one of the parties fueling the ongoing war on Yemen. So Canada's role, um, Canada has tried to hide its role in Yemen, but I think now there's more people in Canada that are learning about it. And even the media here, despite the fact that they're still very shy to cover it and they don't really want to talk about the war on Yemen, they still sometimes have to talk about it because Canada's role is becoming more and more obvious to a lot of people. Do you talk about the actions that are planned in the future where, where people who are listening and outraged, how can they get involved in you know, reversing the tide of, of Canada and the United States? Of course. And, and, and that's, a, that's a very important point because I think it's important that people don't look at, at the strategy and feel overwhelmed. There is a lot that we can do because our voice is important. Either you're in Canada or the United States. And so, for example, here in Vancouver with mobilization against war on occupation, since the start of the war, we've been organizing rallies, protests, educational forums to bring to people's attention. And even now we're continuing. We have held a, a care caravan uh, on March 25th, this past March, and it was actually simultaneously with a care caravan in Hamilton, Ontario. So we're trying to build cross-Canada uh, collaboration and cross-Canada work with different groups against this war and against this Canada's involvement in selling arms to Saudi Arabia. And just uh, for your listening, that listeners that might be interested in these two parliamentary petition uh, that were started as part of a, a Canada-wide coalition uh, against the war. And so uh, people can sign this two petition and, and share them on social media. They can find both of them uh, on Mobilization Against War and Occupation website, uh, which is uh, www.mawovancouver.org. So that's www org. So on our website, uh, I encourage all your listeners uh, to go and sign these petitions and, and share them on social media. But I also want to point out and I encourage them to share a letter um, that was uh, delivered to Justin Trudeau and was signed uh, by 68 organizations in Canada that are representing over 1 million people across the country. And so this letter highlights for the first time, 28 companies in Canada that are part of this arms trades with Saudi Arabia. And so the letter uh, has been delivered to uh, MP offices and some of the companies, and we're gonna continue to do that. So they, there is a lot of actions being planned for the next few months. Uh, we're planning cross-Canada webinars uh, and cross-Canada events, and also between the United States and Canada. And so I encourage uh, listeners to visit our website, as I said, because we will be updating it with all the upcoming events. But um, another, uh, another important campaign that I encourage people to support uh, is that currently, uh, right now in Washington, D.C., some young Yemeni activists are on hunger strike. 
uh, for 18 days. So today is marking 18 days of this hunger strike. Uh, and so they are in front of, uh, they're in Washington, DC, they're camping there. Uh, they're doing actions every day, trying to bring attention to what's happening in their own country. And so uh, people can support them. Um, if, if you go on, on Twitter or on social media, on Instagram, and you look up uh, Yemeni liberation movement, you'll find ways to donate and support their cause. And so there's a lot of momentum that's being built um, in Canada and in the United States. And, and there is, I think it's, it's important that to see that uh, this year, a lot of connections are being made between anti-war activists, us here in Vancouver, folks in Hamilton, in London, Ontario, in Quebec, in different places across Canada. We've been meeting uh, meeting online and trying to organize local actions simultaneously to bring more attention to this war, but also we've been meeting with uh, groups in the United States like the Yemeni Alliance um, and a lot of different Yemeni community-based organizations, but also anti-war organizations in the United States. So there's a lot of cross-border, across-Canada collaboration happening now, and, and I appeal to everybody to join us, either on an uh, in-person event if it's possible, on a webinar if it's possible, by signing the petition and sharing it with your neighbors, with your friends, anything we can do to bring this attention, uh, to bring attention to the war on Yemen and, and hold the government here accountable for the complicity and the killing is very important. I've been speaking with Azar Robchi. She is a uh executive member of Vancouver's Anti-War Coalition, Mobilization Against War and Occupation, and author of the 2019 book, U.S. and Saudi War on the People of Yemen. She joined us from Vancouver. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. President Biden, it is said, made changes to U.S. policy, promising to cancel the role of Ansarallah as terrorists and stop selling arms to Saudi Arabia. I got in touch with two journalists in the region to probe their thoughts about whether this could lead to a, a meaningful configuration in this tragic stalemate. Stephen Swahini is a Syrian journalist and commentator living in Latakia in Syria, and Yusra Abdul Malik is a journalist living in the heart of the crisis in Sana'a, Latakia. U.S. President re- recently officially revoked Ansarallah's role as a terrorist organization, and he also said he would refrain from selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. What kind, what kind of impact do you think these moves made in terms of stopping the war on Yemen or at least eliminating the more severe actions? This, I think, uh, the war in Yemen ends once all stri- airstrikes stop and foreign forces leave the country. The U.S. has fully supported the Saudi-led aggression. It plays a key role in the bloody aggression. So that Biden's uh, expressions and Biden's remarks means nothing because uh, still there are ways for the U.S. to act against Yemen uh, under the pretext of fighting Al-Qaeda. It's known that the U.S. is the one which backed the terrorist group, as said by Hillary Clinton. Biden also declared protecting Saudi Arabia from missiles. 
It means his statement at the same time as they are continuing their act of aggression and blockade are useless. U.S. administration needs to understand that actions speak louder than words. Biden must announce stopping the aggression against Yemen from Washington, from which the decision of starting. It was announced and lift the siege on Yemen in general because the war in Yemen ends once once all strikes stop and foreign forces leave the country. Yeah, I don't know. Stephen, do you want to uh, jump in? and? Uh... Yeah. First of all, the, uh, the United States uh, had a big role in the war on Yemen. And the Obama administration was the number one supporter. And the vice president of Obama in two terms was Joe Biden. So they are the, the number one cause of the war and the number one cause of the suffering of the Yemeni people. And they're the one who supported uh, the war on Yemen. Then uh, Trump came in, the Trump organization came in, and also they supported the war and they did not put any into this war. So for all of these years, either it was the Democrats or the Republicans, Obama, Trump, or Biden, they all have a role in the, uh, in the suffering of the uh, Yemeni people. And the Yemeni people, they, they did the right under international law when they have a, any country, when there is another country doing an aggression against them, they have the right to resist. And that is what the Yemeni people, when the Saudis, they use every kind of weapon that a human a humankind made and invented and use it on the civilians and use it on the ports and on the airports and on the factories and on the infrastructure of the Yemeni uh, people on top of the Yemeni people and destroy it it is the right for the Yemeni people to defend themselves and to uh, uh, to fight back so if anyone wants to put an end to this war it is has to be the United Nations the Security Council and the United States pressuring Saudi Arabia and stopping the aggression. Saudi Arabia, at the same time they are uh, bombing the Yemeni people, they had a big role uh, against my country, Syria, and they funded Saudi Arabia funded the terrorism. They attacked uh, and they and they sent terrorism and weapons on uh, on a one uh, on uh, also it was published on global research. Mm-hmm. So Saudi Arabia, uh, since day one that this family took over that holy land, it was the uh, number one cause uh, of all wars and all the suffering of the Middle East. They've been funding terrorism through back the fifties in Afghanistan through all the way to Yemen, Libya, Syria, Iraq. They have the, the, caused destruction in all of these countries. Uh, that Saudi, that uh, Saudi monarchy, the last monarchy on planet Earth, it is uh, causing so much chaos, so much bloodshed in the Middle East. Anyone has to put into it is the superpowers in the world. And that's what I mean by Russia and by the United States. China and other superpowers, but because they have so much oil and they are so rich, they can get out of uh, anything they do. They Could kill uh, their. Could you talk about? Uh, you mentioned the United Nations. Do you see them as playing a role in bringing peace to the region? Uh, the United Nations. They did about 60, 70, over maybe a hundred. 
regulations against uh, I mean, in support of the Palestinian people against the Israeli occupation for the Syrian, Lebanese, and the Palestinian lands. The Israelis did nothing about it. They also, uh, pro -Syria, for Syria, uh, the war on Syria, they did also a lot of reg regulations for, for Syria. The problem is the United Nations, starting from the end of the World War II until this day today, it is taken under hostage from the United uh, United States and the United States foreign policy. But in the last 10 years, and especially when the war on Syria started, we saw two countries starting using the veto and put it standing in the face of the United States. And that's, I mean, Russia and China when they did veto several times against the Americans. So no one can depend on the United Nations. The United Nations didn't do anything to do peace uh, in the region. We wish that to make peace, uh, that they have a role in making peace in the, uh, in the region. But the United Nations, they are only an employee for the American State Department. And they don't do anything for the region. The Palestinian people, when they sit on the table uh, and to negotiate uh, uh, for uh, for a peace deal with uh, the Israeli occupation, they do it because of their resistance, and they force the occupation to sit on the table. The same thing with the Lebanese in 2006, when Israel attacked south of Lebanon and killed and used every kind of uh, legal and illegal weapons against the Lebanese people in the south. Also, this, uh, the Lebanese resistance from all religions and all sects in Lebanon, they did the resistance in uh, in Lebanon. Also, they forced the Israeli occupation to put an end to the war. So, the same thing in Yemen. The Yemeni resistance and the Yemeni people fighting against this uh, the Saudi and the pro uh, pro Saudi fighters, their uh, terrorists, uh, ISIS and other uh, and other kind of uh, terrorists. Also, they force the Saudis to sit on the table and to do to calm down the uh, situation and war. So okay. the only way, if okay. the United Nations and I'm the United States I'm get do not to put an end okay. to, uh, to this attack. Okay. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, Yusra, um, maybe I, I'd like it if you could talk about uh, the, uh, the, the president uh, that, uh, that uh, this uh, Hadi, who who is not popular with the Yemeni people, uh, but uh, I don't know. It, it, what about the Houthis, the 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 Ansarallah? Do they enjoy support from the Yemeni people, or or is the public sort of caught in the crossfire between the Houthis and and the Saudi coalition? Uh, I want to tell you about some points that's happening in Yemen nowadays. Uh, for example, massive crowds in both areas under the control of Ansarullah and the aggression take to the streets of Yemeni cities to protest against the war that led by Saudi uh, and blockade, uh, which have made it impossible for food and medical supplies to reach the country. They asked the coalition to leave the country. In addition, many convoys of men and food, despite the blockade have been provided to support those stationed in the front. I mean, the Yemeni uh, army and popular uh, committees, uh, which is uh, Ansarullah, is the main part of them. Uh, they support them to fight the Saudi-led aggression by the, by the, by the US. 
uh, also many officers and soldiers gave up the fighting with the Saudi-led aggression and returned to Sana'a, which opened its arms to receive these returnees, providing them with safety, protection, and care because they are still Yemenis, and uh, they returned to their homeland. Uh, regarding the numbers of returnees registered in the National Center database, the center stated that their numbers since the uh, issues of the general amnesty decision until December 20, 2020 reached 12,000 returnees. I mean, a lot of people stopped fighting with the coalition and joined the Yemeni army support, uh, defending their country. Uh, finally, or at the end, they understand that uh, they are just uh, mercenaries and they don't want to protect their country. They just, they are just uh, like uh, people who get money. Stephen, uh, humanitarian assistance has been allowed in Yemen in, in recent days at the same time that Houthi is escalating their attacks. Could they see this as a concession to them and an opportunity to push for more? Uh, in uh, politics, of course, you need to. Uh, uh, as the the more as you escalate, the more you can you can change the rules and the conditions on the negotiation table. So I think by the escalation by the by the Yemeni uh, the Houthis and the Yemeni people, the, I mean the Yemeni resistance against the Saudis, they are asking for more. They are putting pressure on Saudi Arabia because no, they know Saudi Arabia. Uh, is the vein economical vein uh, for uh, ener for uh, the energy industry for the United States? So they are pressuring by them escalating the war. They are pressuring the United States and pressuring the world to stop to force uh, the Crown Prince, MBS Mohammed bin Salman, to stop the war. So because they, the Yemeni people and the Yemeni resistance, they don't want war. They, they are not happy about this war. They want to have a normal life. They want to rebuild their country, have schools, have hospitals, uh, uh, be Yemen like how we knew it in the, in the year 2010 and before. But the problem is the Saudis, they want to take over that sea uh, pass uh, in Yemen. Babel Mandeb, they want to take it over because they are, it is a very strategic uh, uh, it's a very strategic place uh, in the uh, the sea trade, the trade, the shipping trade for the region. So they want to put their hand on it, and they couldn't because uh, not uh, not all of Yemen goes as what the Saudis want. So by escalating the the situation from the Yemeni side, they are, as I told you, they are forcing the United States, forcing the international community to put an end to this war because they don't only want aid. It's not that, well, oh, they bomb and they kill several innocent civilian people, oh, and then they send a ship of, uh, of aid. That's what not, that's not a human, uh, that's no human rights. We put an end to the war and we rebuild the country. That's what the Yemeni people want. They want to live uh, stable, free, and rebuild their country and live peace like any other nation. But the Saudi uh, uh, regime doesn't want that. They want to take over and they want to occupy Yemen. Um so why don't we talk about Saudi Arabia and its allies? They, they depend on the U.S. for success. How significant could countries like Iran play in pushing for peace? Today, uh, uh, if, uh, if the world likes it or, wrong, uh, or not, uh, Iran is 
a regional power today uh, in the region and the growing power in the world, if you like it or not today, economically, militarily, and on all, and politically, on all aspects. And they have a role uh, in several cases and several problems around the world. They have a role, uh, they have a hand in, uh, in the solution. It's Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, and several other uh, countries around the Afghanistan, Pakistan, and others. So today, Iran, uh, to, uh, they have a role. And today, the nuclear deal, the new nuclear deal uh, that they are negotiating with Washington has a big uh, impact, and it can help Yemen, and it can help Iraq, and it will help Syria also. Because it's not only about, because those countries are allies to, uh, to Iran. Mm -hmm. and, if, now I can... and if Iran... Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. If okay. Iran is strong, those countries will have a role in, uh, in solving those uh, situation of those, in those countries. Yusra, uh, you've been uh, off for a bit. Um, I, I was wondering if you could uh, maybe uh, shed light on the idea of the humanitarian assistance that uh, had been allowed into Yemen uh, in recent days, and and that the, at the same time the Houthi were escalating their attacks, if that was a concession to them and, and an opportunity to push for more. Okay, as you know, uh, we are still uh, being attacked by uh, almost daily airstrikes and we are living um, amid uh, severe, uh, okay, uh, suffering because of the blockade uh, that was imposed uh, by the Saudi-led coalition. So, as you know, backed by the U.S. and a number of other Western states, such as U.K. and so on, Saudi Arabia and a number of its region, uh, regional uh, allies launched the war. Uh, and uh, they climbed a lot of uh, life, lives, um, estimated at uh, 100,000 life, lives, according to uh, the US-based armed conflict uh, location and even data project. And as you know, uh, they also uh, take a heavy toll on Yemen's infrastructures, destroying hospitals, schools, and factories. It means uh, we live in a, a humanitarian crisis. Uh, as, the, as the United Nations said, uh, the United Nations also warned of a mass famine in Yemen that will put millions of people at risk. It also describes the country as the worst place on earth. They, um, I can say, they just say, they just express uh, their concern. Uh, but when in terms of actions, we find uh, nothing. Uh, but what can we do? Uh, we just hear uh, their uh, concerns or their uh, uh, words. Uh, they, uh, they also describe Yemen as the world's largest humanitarian, as I said. Uh, but uh, in terms of humanitarian crisis, uh, finally or uh, recently, uh, President uh, Biden, uh, can we say, lift, lift Ansarullah movement, lift Ansarullah movement from the terrorist uh, list. Uh, they think this is uh, as a gift from them to us, and they don't know we are, uh, we are used to, to their uh, airstrikes and uh, 
their uh, blockade because we are here in Yemen uh, can bear hunger and anything, but we can't bear uh, being slaves or uh, uh, servants in the United Nations. In late June last year, that the shortage of humanitarian assistance amid the cor corona pandemic threatened to push more children in Yemen to bring up starvation. Even the children, they are innocent. They have nothing to do to uh, harm the United States or Saudi Arabia. So what can we do? The whole idea that, that the control of the strait between Yemen, Djibouti, and Eritrea is a strategic factor in the, the U.S. aspirations in the region, right? Uh, I'm wondering if a balkanation, a balkanization of Yemen, which, which left the important region in, in U.S.-Saudi hands, if that could be a factor in terms of being able to, to get some sort of uh, aim out of this. What do you think of that? Okay, as you know, uh, as I told you, uh, the popular Houthi Ansarullah movement backed by the Yemeni armed forces and allied popular groups has gone from strength to strength against the Saudi-led invaders and successfully defended Yemen, leaving Riyadh and its allied bugs down in the country. They have been defending the country against the aggressor's regime and continue to launch strikes deep inside Saudi Arabia until this is achieved in Yemen. But a full blockade on the country has compounded the humanitarian situation. As you know, recently, Yemen has unveiled new achievements in the defense sector, including ballistic missiles, drones, and artillery, as well as anti-tank and light and heavy weapons uh, against Saudi Arabia. And as you know, Yemeni want, by doing this, Yemeni want to convey a message to Saudi Arabia that if you keep occupying Yemen, uh, neither the Patriots, Patriots nor the other uh, missiles will be able to secure your country because it's our right to defend our country. And uh, as Saudi Arabia climbed, uh, it is uh, uh, defending its country. <laughs> it's good to defend its country inside or on the border, not inside Yemen, because they are launching airstrikes inside Yemen to defend Saudi Arabia, which makes no sense. Well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll ask you one more question, uh, Yusra, if, if that's okay. Uh, what kind of an impact do you think that mobilizing against this war has had on the actions of the government? Are you mobilizing against the, the U.S. And, and Canada and other countries? Is it making a difference, do you think? As you know, Yemeni people uh, don't uh, trust uh, U.S. Uh, anymore because they have been living uh, amid the war for almost uh, or uh, for over six years. Uh, they are used to listen to many talks about peace and uh, about developments and human rights, women rights, but uh, they uh, just uh, hear words. But in terms of actions, we find nothing. So over time, many people try to even uh, uh, almost uh, nearly, nearly all Yemeni people uh, support uh, Ansarullah movement and the Yemeni 
army and popular committees uh, against uh, the Saudi-led coalition backed by the U.S. Uh, they did so because uh, of uh, because of what happened uh, through six or almost or over six years. That's why they started to support Ansar Allah movement because of uh, its uh, uh, actions and because of uh, its uh, deeds and uh, reality. Unlike U.S. and Saudi-led coalition that uh, keeps killing and striking all the international law on front of the whole world or almost not whole world, almost the whole world which keeps uh, watching what's happening in Yemen silently. Uh, this is the attitude of Yemeni people. And uh, despite, of, or, uh, despite of hunger and suffering, they try to go to the front to defend their countries. And they try to provide uh, the front with uh, food and men in order to, uh, in order to defend their country and um, sovereignty and so on. I guess uh, maybe Stephen, uh, if, if you have any final thought. The role of the American activists or all the actors, especially in the United States, uh, but all around the world is uh, in Canada, in the United, uh, in the EU, uh, in the UK, all over. The role is the activists and journalists, Western journalists who are, who, uh, who are pro-human rights in Yemen and who wants to stop the war in Yemen. They should pressure their congressmen, their parliament members. Uh, they should pressure them, send them letters, call, uh, do protest in, uh, in front of their houses. Pressure them. So, you know, the United States Congress, the EU, don't have pressure from politically from other nations and by uh, the journalists and activists and everyone who wants to stop the war. You might not be in You can pick up the phone and call your parliament member and demand them to put an end to this war and to put an end to the suffering of the Yemeni people uh, and uh, to put an end to the aggression of the Saudi Arabia killing and bombing the Yemeni people for six years. They have no right to do that. So that is the role of activists, journalists, and Western, uh, every Western person who wants to stop and who wants, who, who is pro-human rights in Yemen. That was a conversation with two journalists, Stephen Swahini, based in Syria, and Yusra Abdul-Malik, based in the city of Sana'a in Yemen, reporting on the troubled country. Before we leave this subject, I wanted to bring one more voice to this broadcast. The group Stop the War UK organized a virtual January 25th, 2021 action saying no to war on Yemen. Here is a recording of one of those speakers. Each and every one of us who's come together to raise our voices because we want to affirm the precious humanity of our brothers and sisters in Yemen, that we want to ensure that we keep track of this spiritual decay and more decrepitude that takes the form of an institutionalized greed and an organized hatred against our brothers and sisters in Yemen. And we do this in such a way that we embrace all of those persons who find themselves in situations of domination and subjugation and degradation, not as some neoliberal glib gesture that makes us feel good, but rather because we have a 
genuine solidarity of care and concern. We stand here because we affirm truth and the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. We affirm justice and justice is what love looks like in public and the love takes the form of raising voices, putting bodies on the line and letting our brothers and sisters in Yemen know that they have not been forgotten. That their humanity will never ever be rendered invisible no matter what the corporate media has to say. And that we will speak the truth about them and recognize that a Yemen baby has exactly the same value as a baby in Ethiopia, a baby in Guatemala, a baby in the American empire, a baby in Greece, a baby in Tel Aviv, a baby in West Bank and Gaza, a baby in China, that is the spiritual and moral force behind our voices coming together. And of course, I speak in the midst of the belly of the beasts of the American empire when Martin Luther King Jr. said 54 years ago, my own government is the biggest conveyor of violence because it is the major empire in the world. That's not anti-American, that's anti-injustice in America and the impact of US imperial policies around the world. So we make the connection between the police murders taking place in the United States with the Wall Street crimes taking place in New York and big tech crimes and connected to the Pentagon militarism, and it doesn't make any difference what color the head of the Pentagon is. It doesn't make any difference what gender the vice president is. If they don't meet moral and spiritual criteria of putting the least of these at the center of their vision, poor people, working people, no matter what color, gender, sexual orientation, or national identity, we will raise our voices. This is why I'm blessed to be here. And this is why we intend to be faithful unto death and not allow the greed and the hatred, the imperial policy, the predatory capitalism, the patriarchy, the homophobia, the transphobia, losing sight of anybody, be the Arab, Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, Baptist, whatever. That was American philosopher, political activist, social critic, and public intellectual Cornell West speaking on the need to end the war in Yemen. You can find the entire video by going to the YouTube for World Says No to War on Yemen, Global Online Rally. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.